Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Michigan of Michigan Law, joined today by my uh, co-host, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings, and we are going to be focusing on Jerry Garcia today. Dan? Welcome to the show. What are we listening to, and why did you go with Jerry Garcia Band today? Well, it's an easy choice, Larry. Uh, first of all, I'm great. Thanks. And uh, why Jerry? Um, look, that show is 31878 from the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. Uh, as you know, we always try to find something that's kind of timely to you know, when we're taping. I've been looking forward to putting this one on for almost a year. It's If I were to say, you know, pick a couple of Garcia Band shows that are must-haves in your collection, you were to say, you know, take five on a desert island, this would be my first pick every time. It's uh, an unbelievable show. Uh, for those that aren't familiar, there was an early show and a late show, which Jerry was doing for a few shows in, uh, in early 78. The lineup is amazing. You know, you've got Keith and Donna, uh, Maria Mulder, and backup vocals as well. You've got uh, John Kahn, obviously Garcia. It's just a fantastic lineup. It's super clean. Betty Canner Jackson did the, uh, did the recording, so you know, it's a solid Betty board. Top to bottom, this show is just smoking every bit of it. So, uh, so that was that was the reason, and you know, other than that, you know that I'd always rather listen to Garcia Band than, than the Grateful Dead, anyway. So, here's a great excuse, you know. Uh, I agree, and, and and not to slight Buzz Buchanan on drums because he does a great job too. And uh, uh, that was, you know, we, you and I were talking about this before that um, there's so many variations of the Jerry Garcia Band that the, the only constant he really ever had over the years was John Kahn on bass. Right, and then uh, there was always kind of a, a, a turntable of drummers and a turntable of keyboardists, and you could always kind of more or less define the era by the keyboardists. And here it's, uh, you know, as we say, Keith Gauchow, you know, on loan from the Grateful Dead, uh, uh, and as part of the Jerry Garcia band for a while. You know, that was really great. I think you know they were already well established with each other. You know, had a good stage presence and understood how to talk to each other musically and. Um, you know, having Donna around to back up Jerry, that's okay. I think that's a great place for her to be. Totally agree. And, you know, having Keith as the uh, the keyboard player is so much different than, let's say, like a Melvin Seals who's playing a Hammond B3 with a Leslie, um, you know, Leslie speaker stack on it versus Keith playing basically a pure electric piano. And the electric piano is just a, um, just a much cleaner sound in a lot of ways. So when you think about the difference between him and like a, a you know, a Melvin Seals or a, a Merle Saunders or an Ozzy Eilers, like, all of them had totally different sounds, but this is an era, it was a very brief era, I think about a year where Keith and Donna were playing, was terrific. And Maria Mulder, I think, has just an absolutely beautiful voice uh, as a backup singer. So, you know, th- this one I, I love, and uh, it's, for me, it's been a go-to, you know, for years and years of, there's certain licks on this show, you know, I, I would point out that the six-minute jam in the, in the middle of The Harder They Come, which we were just listening to part of, is about as clean as it gets, and the interplay between T- Keith and Jerry is just incredible. But then there's other parts of the show as well that you know you can pick out specific licks out of the show that you know for years like sort of permeate in my head and just make me happy. 
It is a wonderful show, and I'm very excited to get to it today. You know, uh, I'm a bit of a Jerry nerd like you, and uh, you know, pretty much on any day was just as happy to go to a Garcia concert as I was to go to a Grateful Dead show. Uh, and it's just ensured you were going to get, you know, two and a half hours of solid Jerry uh, without the occasional interruption of Bob or, you know, Brent or Phil, whoever else felt the need to, to pop in that day. Not that that wasn't what made the Grateful Dead great, but boy, if you just wanted Jerry, uh, you know, a steady dose of him, there was nothing like catching a, uh, a JGB show. Uh, so we will get to that in a little while. Let's uh, move over to a little bit of marijuana news because there is some always some interesting stuff going on there. One of the stories we found this week, Rob, uh, that you had sent over was that it looks like we have the National Association of State Treasurers finally recognizing the value and the importance of, maybe not finally recognizing, I'm sure they've realized just watching the tax revenue roll in, but recognizing how important the banking industry really is and really uh, making up an apparent goal of theirs at their most recent conference to push really hard and support uh, Representative Perlmutter, who we've talked about before, uh, in his never-ending efforts to get a safe banking act approved or some version of it approved, uh, you know, without necessarily having to attach it to another appropriations bill uh, so that uh, the states can actually function and take advantage of these dollars knowing that their state operators are doing so, you know, with the security of the banking system behind them. Yeah, and I think it's something that, you know, we've discussed before, but it's important to remind everyone that Changes to the law don't happen because the voters want them to happen. Oftentimes they happen because there's someone else in government that says this makes our life easier, makes our life more efficient. So when you've got you know, the state attorneys general that are leaning on uh, the, the, the feds to do something, or you've got the state treasurers leaning on the banking committee, or you've got um, you know, top law enforcement in general, you know, all the sheriff's associations, that's when people notice, when they say, okay, this is our own state. And you know, I've always talked about federal legalization from the standpoint of you know, sure, it helps when a lot of states continue to pass legislation, but ultimately it's probably going to be the state houses themselves or the governor's mansions that are now leaning on the state or leaning on their, their U.S. representatives in the House and the Senate to say, you know, the program you guys have for us is untenable. And, and that's kind of what we're seeing right now with these state treasurers going out there saying that what you guys are forcing us to face off against is inefficient. It doesn't make any sense. You know, we, we've got to figure out a way to uh, allow for digital banking, electronic banking, We've got to figure out ways to get uh, the, the banking industry more involved in this space. And if you don't, you're just making our lives more difficult and, and more cumbersome. And so it's, uh, you know, I can sit there and, you know, meet with the bipartisan uh, congressional committee all day, and they don't care what I've got to say. But when these guys are saying it, uh, it makes a big impact. I think you're right. And, uh, you know, it's wonderful to see that, that, you know, not only are they recognizing, but they're fully embracing the importance of a legal cannabis market in their state. Even if you want to say they're doing it purely for selfish financial reasons, you know, for the benefit of their state, my response is who cares? It benefits the industry. It allows the industry to operate in, in the way that most of us would like to see it be able to operate. And you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, any one of us or any group of us or any large group of us can get together and yell and scream all we want. And, and I'm not sure at the end of the day that the National Association of State Treasurers has any more inroads to the Mitch McConnells and Chuck Schumers of the world, uh, you, know, in, you know, in terms of moving them off their political uh, ideals, that, you know, and, and targets than you and I. But, you know, it'd sure be nice to think that uh, because of who they are and, and uh, the positions they play in each state, especially controlling, you know, the state finances, uh, that they would have a voice that might be uh, a little more prone to being heard. You would hope. Uh, time will tell, but, you know, always a step in the right direction when the pressure is coming from inside than when it's coming from, you know, outside groups or, or industry groups. Yep, I agree with that. 
Next uh, article that you found for us, and, and this is a great one. I really like it because I get asked this question all the time, and, and I guess I've just never really taken the time to, to, to do the research, but here's the, uh, you know, the news now that tells us uh, which, which job markets, which job industries are testing their employees at a higher percentage than other industries, right? If, if, you, uh, if you enjoy smoking marijuana, and as we all know, still the law in, 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 most, in, in every state is that an employer has an absolute right to demand a drug-free workplace uh, as long as they apply that consistently across the board. And if they do so, and if they want to have drug testing, they're allowed to do that. You know, and, and they have broad discretion to fire you, even if you're a medical uh, cannabis pa- uh, medical cannabis patient. And um, you know, we we we've seen the uh, uh, the Dish TV case out of Colorado that really kind of established that rule, and it really hasn't been successfully challenged in the interim. So, uh, you know, people who are graduating from college or people who have jobs and are looking to make uh, moves into new industries or whatever it might be, uh, it sure helps to know uh, which industries out there are more likely to do it. And, and I have to say, I know you've looked at this too, but uh, the leading industry that tests over, really the only industry that tests over 50% of his empl- its employers is transportation and warehousing. And, and given what those employees are primarily doing, that can't really be a surprise to anybody. No, it's not. And then for certain industries, I kind of expect that drug testing will remain. But for a lot of other industries, it doesn't make any sense at all. If you're a, you know, working at a software company or you're working you know, as an engineer in general, uh, why you'd ever be drug tested makes no sense. So uh, you know, if you're ha- operating heavy machinery or you're operating anything else that you know, can put people's uh, lives at, at risk, sure, you know, there's an appropriate place for everything. Now, having said that, with cannabis, we all know that it's fat-soluble. It's not, you know, it's not easily detected as to when you actually consumed. So until they can actually get the testing policy better, where you've got a, a, a way to say, was the person actually um, uh, impaired at the time of whatever accident is that you're testing against, it, it's still very, very difficult to, to make a determination of whether or not um, you know, you're penalizing the person for something they did in their off time or whether you're penalizing for something they did on the job. And I've got a fundamental difference or problem with you know, saying, I'm gonna fire someone for something that they did at home Versus, you know, are they ready to work and perform when they get here? I think you're absolutely right, and and you know, it, it's in the uh, employment industry, and of course, it's also in the DUI in, uh, uh, sector, where this becomes a very big problem. And you know, the truth of the matter is, and we may have discussed this on the show previously. There's an old uh, uh, Arizona Supreme Court case from a number of years back where they were the first state in the country to adopt uh, blood testing of metabolites, and they test the metabolites, and when they're in the hydroxy stage, then you know that the person is under psychoactive effects of the drug, but once they metabolize into the carboxy stage, they're no longer under that effect. And in that, in fact, in the, in the particular case cited, the individual who had been arrested and charged with driving under the influence was ultimately exonerated by the Arizona Supreme Court because the testing showed uh, that the metabolites were in the carboxy stage at the time that he was tested, uh, which supported his story that he had uh, consumed marijuana a few days before but had not been smoking it at or near the time of his being pulled over, um, which otherwise, as you point out, if it's just strictly a matter of whether your body tests hot or not, we're going to lose every single time with a 28-day target. The real issue is whether or not um, law enforcement and employers want to spend the money to do a blood test, which is obviously going to be far uh, more expensive than running a routine panel on a urine sample. And so far, there hasn't seemed to be a big desire to do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that it's because people are, are being, uh, 
you know, cost conscientious and, and don't want to spend the extra money to get it right, uh, you know, as opposed to that they just don't care if they get it right and they want, you know, if, if, even if you've smoked and it's, you know, three days before you know, on a Saturday, uh, if they find out that they want to have that right to get rid of you. And, and that's the point of view that scares me. I absolutely agree. And I think it goes a step further than that. And it's also HR departments and insurance companies. You know, there's a certain lack of, um, of differentiation where they don't care about the nuance. The nuance doesn't matter. For them, it's, look, if you don't want to have to worry about this, then just don't use it. Don't use cannabis. And I don't think that's the right answer. If you're in a state where it's, you know, legal for adult use, uh, then you've got the right to use cannabis, federally legal or not. Your state has made the determination if you're employed in that state. And I, I understand that there's, you know, multi-state corporations or multi-national uh, corporations that have to have one blanket policy, and that blanket policy is really hard for them to say, well, it applies to you here and it applies to someone else differently there. But at the same time, they have to start figuring this out. I mean, and I think that a lot of companies are realizing that if they continue to drug test, that they're not going to have viable applicants. You know, and in a job market right now where, you know, there's, we're at near full employment again, uh, and a lot of people got rid of their old jobs in favor of finding jobs that pay better and are demanding higher wages, you know, for employers that aren't paying all that well, if, if someone asks me to drug test, my answer is I'm not taking that job. And, and by the way, I'm not coming up positive for anything. I very rarely use cannabis. And if I did, you know, like my chances of getting dinged in a drug test are slim, but I'm still not taking, you know, a, a job that, that requires it. And I think there's a lot of people out there that feel the same way. And I think there's a greater, greater proportion of our country that's choosing not to use alcohol anymore as their drug of choice and are trying to, you know, move towards cannabis, believing it's safer, which it, we all know it is. Uh, so with that in mind, you know, look, you're, ultimately they're shooting themselves in the foot. But I think that this article that Marijuana Moment published substantiates that. You know, and the, the percentage of companies that are, that are testing is going down in a pretty meaningful way, which would suggest that uh, they understand the world they're living in right now and that, you know, cannabis testing is no longer a, uh, a priority. I, I think you're absolutely right. I agree with everything you just said. And, and I always joke with my employer clients, you know, you really better be careful because if you employ a drug testing policy, you have to be consistent across the board. And what are you going to do when all 10 of your, you know, uh, CPAs or business planners or, you know, senior executive teams, you know, who all smoke marijuana in their off time because legally they can do it now, test positive. You're going to really go out and fire this entire group of people who have been you know, making profits for you at, at the, you know, just on the basis of principle. Um, and you hope that they won't. It's, you're right, it is interesting to see these numbers going down, although I, I find myself being a little hypocritical, but maybe not so much because I see transportation and warehousing is still somewhere right around 52 or 53%. And my thought is, why isn't that higher? <laughs> right? If I'm getting on an airplane, I, you know, I, we, we can do platitudes to it all we want, but I'm not sure that I want you know, my pilot having smoked marijuana any more than I want him having uh, you know, had a drink of uh, alcohol. When you throw warehousing in there, I think that's just a matter of on-the-job safety because those guys are driving around in big, heavy equipment. Um, but, but that's And then, obviously, utilities uh, come up very high. Uh, they're, the, they're the only other one that crosses over 40%, but I'm assuming, given the work that those guys do, uh, that they need to be very, very careful. A lot of them are out on the road driving around and working on high wires with uh, high voltage uh, and stuff like that. On the other hand, Rob, what I noticed was that um, they have arts and entertainment and recreation they grouped in there, and that, that taps out, it looks like about 6 or 7%, and that just makes me laugh a little bit because do you really want to be matching up recreation with arts and entertainment, right? I mean, if, if, a, if a rock star or somebody like that is getting high, 
that's one thing. Uh, if the guy who's in charge of your kid's play group over at the recreation center is getting high, that may be something else. Yeah, if that's how you define recreation. I'm not sure if, you know, what goes into that, in that category. But yeah, arts and entertainment. I always think back on, uh, there's a, a Tool album, I think Enema, where Bill Hicks, the comedian, is talking over one of their songs as part of his routine where he's like, you know, if you're, if you're anti-drugs, go out and take every one of your records and albums and you know, books and all your favorite stuff and just throw them in the bin because all those guys were real fucking high. <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's a great point that, you know, and you think about the creativity and you think about the people uh, that, that have made great music or great art or great um, uh, written great books over the years, whether it's, you know, your Lewis Carroll's, your Aldous Huxley's or, you know, any of the musicians that we love. Uh, most of them at some point in time in their life were, were deeply influenced by some sort of uh, intoxicant. So, uh, careful what you wish for. I agree. And uh, as a good link to our next story that we're about to get to, uh, the other thing that kind of caught me off guard is that another group uh, uh, of employment that's under 10% for being tested is educational services. So, you know, I I assume that that's talking about uh, uh, the people who are teaching our children um, as well as, uh, you know, probably more at the university level or things like that. That's a little bit surprising, I guess, uh, you know, given the way that, that people scream about uh, education and what our teachers are doing on, you know, so many other, you know, quote unquote, hot button issues. Um, but I'm wondering also, Rob, if this isn't a result of, and we use this to kind of segue into our uh, final news story of the day, uh, is that a study has come out. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I just laughed because this is like reminds me of Woody Allen Sleeper, right? Where they say, We've learned that red meat and high fat diets are the best thing you could possibly eat. You know, and here the study is coming out telling us And Neil Cassidy cheers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that as as that college students who use cannabis are more likely to select high effort choice options. Uh, regardless of the reward magnitude, probability, expected value of the overall reward. In other words, they're much more highly motivated than their non-cannabis smoking contemporaries. And if that doesn't really seem to turn, you know, every common myth that we've ever had on its head, I don't know what does. You know, I'm so sick of the lazy stoner uh, persona or like mythology because I know so many hyper-motivated people that consume cannabis like, literally all day long. And, uh, and perform at an exceptionally high level. And there's some people, you know, I, I don't know if there's a, a natural, you know, balance that they find, but, you know, you think about for some people or that are, you know, when they're young prescribed, like, you know, Ritalin or some other um, ADHD drug, because they're hyperactive, so they surprisingly feed them speed, right? It makes no sense to me. But there's other people that, you know, for concentration purposes, evidently cannabis, you know, relaxes them and gets them into a groove where they can actually do their work uh, at a really high level. You know, I'm not one of those people. Part of the reason I don't use Canvas that much is because I've got too much shit to do during the day. And for me to be able to get it done, uh, it's easier not to, to consume. But I know other people that, you know, they wake up, do three bong hits in the morning or, you know, do a dab, and they're off to the races. So, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, you're going to sit around and do nothing all day because you've been using Canvas, I, I think the entire software industry pretty much shuts that one down. Well, you know, I, I love that you say that because as a... As a guy who's a big fan of cannabis, that was always my motivation to get out of bed in the morning and, and get to work because I was always determined not to be that guy uh, who they were going to use in the commercial, uh, you know, the, the infamous commercial, right, with the guy sitting downstairs all day, the 35-year-old guy, and all of a sudden you hear his mom call him, nah, ma, I don't want anything to eat. You know, and this is what you can become if, if you smoke marijuana. And I'm like, well, I like it, and that's not the guy who I became. Um, you know, and I think there's always this desire almost to kind of overachieve or overperform to really kind of take that that potential stigma 
and, and bury it as much as possible. But the truth is, uh, and I've seen it with people that I know, uh, you know, kids like you say, you know, who are ADHD, never been able to focus or study in school. All of a sudden they get to high school, they get exposed to marijuana, even though the parents are convinced that that would be the absolute worst thing for them. And all of a sudden you see them calming down a little bit, being able to focus a little bit more. And it, it, it's really just amazing that for so long, you know, I think that so many people have just gotten it backwards just based on their own prejudices and the uh, reefer madness myth, which, you know, everybody who says they don't believe reefer madness, but they really do. Right. And you know, I'll, put, I'll point no further than the cannabis industry itself that, you know, the vast majority of cannabis executives use cannabis, you know, consistently. That's part of the allure of what got them into the, uh, the industry in the first place is a love of the plant. And, you know, that includes attorneys, includes bankers, it includes, you know, go on down the line of, uh, of people that are supporting the industry, but the industry people themselves, like the people you interact with as your bud tenders, the people you interact with as your, uh, as your cultivators. All these guys use cannabis, you know, most of them very frequently, you know, multiple, multiple times a day. And they're all getting their job done. And they're performing at a very high level. So uh, hopefully more of these studies come out and dispel more of these myths. You know, I'm not going to say that that the stereotype doesn't apply to some people, but I think those people are probably inherently lazy with or without cannabis, and I don't think one has anything to do with the other. I, I can say I know a lot more people over my lifetime who have been derelict uh, in you know getting their work done as abusers of alcohol or other drugs as they are of cannabis. Like can cannabis to me has never been one that uh, is a performance enhancing in terms of uh, in terms of like athletics, but it's not performance detrimental in terms of function. Well, I, you know, when I was in uh, senior at the University of Michigan in 1984, we did a debate on whether or not marijuana should be legalized. And, you know, and we looked at one of the very issues you just talked about, and I was on the, the pro that, yes, it should be legalized. And even in 1984, it was a very easy debate to win back then as well, um, you know, in, in terms of what we what we knew about marijuana, what we knew about uh, uh, what it could be a positive, how it, you know, it was not a negative in the way um, – that, that people perceived it to be and that um, you know, we knew of people, you know, there were studies that were already showing uh, people who were very high performers on it uh, and suggesting that the myth of the, um, the lazy student was, was nothing more than that um, and, and really just a myth. And so it became, you know, almost a logical impossibility, you know, in, in, in my opinion, to really support the anti, if you are going to try to raise these types of arguments and, and address these types of things, because the arguments, if anybody was just willing to take the time and, and, and to look and see, uh, you know, the information was pretty clear. But, but, the, but the, the, the statistic that really rang true to me at that time was that even then, and I suppose it's the same now, marijuana was about fourth or fifth down on the list of substances in terms of lost work hours. Of course, number one is caffeine, which nobody likes to hear because you know people who drink caffeine will tell you, well, I don't use drugs. I'm just drinking caffeine. This doesn't count. Well, you know, try not drinking it one day and having a headache and tell me it's not a drug. Uh, I don't drink coffee, by the way, but I know people that do, and I will always be more than happy to point that out to them. But cigarettes, alcohol, uh, are also all uh, ahead of marijuana in terms of substances that inhibit work performance and uh, account for lost work hours in the American economy. And yet it's marijuana, the one that we beat up on all the time, uh, you know, and suggest that this is really the root of the problem without ever bothering to address these other issues. And so we really do ourselves a disservice like anything else when, you, when we attempt 
to spend all of our time and energy proving what we know to be a lie, uh, we lose the opportunity to really move forward in a positive way and think about all the other potential people out there. And I'm, I'm not talking about getting all high school students stoned by any means or all college students. But certainly, uh, you know, to the extent we're going to look at it and say that cannabis, when used in proper amounts and under proper circumstances, uh, can be a contributor to greater motivation. You know, I just can think of all these parents out there who for years have said, my kid's under motivated. They smoke weed all day long. And, you know, it would be nice if they knew the difference. Yeah, agreed. And so for all the people that are of age out there, I guess what we're saying is, Smoke more weed, get shit done. Right, yeah, that's that's sure what it sounds like. Drink less, smoke more, and get stuff done and live longer. You know, it's all all, all seem like good points to me. But uh, this is just, you know, still kind of the tip of the iceberg and everything that's going on in the industry. But as you and I are wont to say, I think, Rob, enough marijuana, man. Let's talk Grateful Dead. Let's, let's talk Garcia, man. Let's talk Jerry. Let's talk Garcia. Yeah, let's, let's, let's get our focus back on this thing. And, you know, 1978, when I thought about it, is really kind of a, this may be the absolute epicenter of Jerry's career. You know, I mean, I know you saw a lot of Garcia shows in the late 80 and early and 90s and, you know, not to diminish those or to say that they weren't good or anything. And, and I saw my share of Garcia shows in the 80s uh, and always, always enjoyed it. But, you know, this is 78. This is really right before I think we're into full-blown, you know, a powdered substance abuser, Jerry, and, you know, still kind of in... Uh, you know, maybe the psychedelic days are over or winding down. Uh, but, you know, the, the energy that he plays with and, and the, the, the tone in his voice, you know, when he sings and how solid he is on all the lyrics. And uh, he just sounds tremendous. And yes, with uh, with Keith, with that strong backing piano. And I love the piano sound. I love it with the dead. I love it with Jerry. And, you know, and, and the background singers who, who, who do, Donna, and, uh, and they all add so much. And of course, you know, John Kahn keeping that beat and um, on the bass, and they rip through these tunes. It's just a pleasure to listen to. Yeah, and I agree. I think from like you know the, the pinnacle, I think for me is 1975 to about 1979, starting with the Legion of Mary stuff, going through the couple of these lineups, uh, and we've talked about some of the other ones, you know, the Ozzy Eilers lineup as well, and then going into the Reconstruction period, uh, where it's you know Garcia playing in a funk band. Uh, that four-year period of creativity on a side project basis is exceptional you know and after that come 1980 going forward for the next 15 years it really fell into more of a you know kind of a consistent groove of you know song selection uh not too much change in lineup at that point you know you're getting you know melvin for a long time you're getting david kemper for a long time on uh, obviously john Kahn, but all the sort of changes you know like the nicky hopkins uh change on keyboards all that happened in a you know four-year period and it was just a ton of creativity that was coming out and this, you know, this May 1978 run, which included, I think, um, some uh, Capitol Theater from the Passaic, New or Passaic Theater uh, in, I said it wrong again, it's the Capitol Theater, Passaic, New Jersey. A couple nights there and a couple nights in uh, upstate New York and in uh, Pawtucket, Rhode Island. It was just a random tour from like the 11th of, uh, of March until, um, until, I think, the 22nd or so of March that just put out some of the, the best recordings and it's got a chance to listen to all of those. They're all gems, but this Warner Theater in particular, you know, as I said, it was the early show and the late show. I, I chose to focus on the late show today just because there's just so much good stuff in there. But if I were to say what the peak for me, you know, it's, it's hard to pick the, the perfect highlight because, you know, the song selection included things that they almost never played, including uh, I'll Be With Thee, uh, Palm Sunday, which I think we'll hear a little bit of later. 
they they chose a, um, a lonesome long way from home that is you know pushing thirty plus minutes. That's just you know outer space. You know to the point where when it finally comes back into the song, you're totally forgetting what song they were playing for probably fifteen minutes of it. A stage two jam, I think the kids call it. I think it would be a stage two. It's exactly right. And, uh, you know, one song that for me has always been, if you were to say, like, you know, we talked about Morning Dew a couple weeks ago, but if you say on the Garcia band side, what's your Morning Dew? For me, it's always been Mission in the Rain. And, uh, you know, like, if you were to say, what song have you, you know, sort of crossing your fingers for as you're walking in the door? Mission was always it for me. If you look at the song, it's one of the only songs in the catalog that's, you know, kind of truly autobiographical, you know, to, uh, to Garcia, you know, the way, like, Truckin' would be to the Grateful Dead's career. But, you know, Mission was was you know kind of his aspirational song of where he was and where he went and so many great lyrics that came out of that but more of sort of the heartfelt emotion that came in before the um before the final verse and in this version in particular i think it's one of just the like most glorious garcia licks ever played uh in this mission over like you know a three-minute jam that kind of builds up and then you know drops back in but you know dan if you've got any of that queued up i'd love to play a little bit of this mission can't tell you how many times larry i have rewound that one lick and listened to it over and over like to the point like where that part of my tape was probably dulled out when everything else is still crisp just from hearing that that one lick coming into that and that's obviously right before it goes back into the uh, all the things i planned to do i only did halfway line but it's it it's magic that's I, I've always loved Mission in the Rain. It's always been one of my favorite songs, just songs, period. And, you know, when you think about it, in 1978, it's still a relatively new tune. Um, you know, it's only been out for a couple of years by that point. And, uh, you know, Garcia's still probably working it out as in, in his own way. Uh, but this version is absolutely a classic. And uh, that is a very, very uh, notable lick by Garcia, um, and it's great because it just kind of shows uh, the energy that they're playing with at this time. And, you know, you talk about how productive he was during this period of time. And if you think about it, I mean, you know, 1978, they had, uh, um, they had at, at that point, what, probably uh, wrapped up Blues for Allah. They were on their way. Uh, they had been probably just getting ready for Shakedown Street. They still had Go to Heaven to Come. Uh, and Garcia was pumping out music at a fast rate as well. I mean, that's just absolutely incredible to, to, to you know to, to maintain that kind of pace. And maybe that explains a lot about what happened to him in the long run. But you know, for this period of time, Jerry was fire, firing on all cylinders. And you know, we, we've talked about how much we love Dead shows from 1978. And uh, you know, one of the reasons why I think is just because of how sharp and clear Garcia's guitar playing is during that period of time. Yeah, look, I think that's true of a lot of bands. You know, where if they've got side projects, you know, those side projects keep them, you know, kind of juiced up and ready to go for their main project. And you have to think that if you're out on the road and you're playing to an audience all the time, that means that you never really have a time to, 
to kind of get stale at all. And so, you know, obviously the, the great example would be, you know, Tab for, for Trey when he's not playing with Fish. But, you know, it's true of a lot of other uh, bands as well where their side projects keep them busy and they're doing other stuff. So when they get back on the road with their main band, they're in a certain mental energy of just, you know, completely and totally inspired by the other music they're, they're playing. And I think that Garcia band, I mean, there's a period there in the later years where it was pretty obvious that Jerry, you know, really enjoyed playing with JGB more than he enjoyed playing with the Grateful Dead. You know, there's a period there in like 1993 or 94 where there was rumors that he was just only going to start playing with, you know, Bruce Hornsby and Brantford Marsalis and one or two other key musicians and was going to try to put the Grateful Dead uh, as a side project. But obviously untenable when you've got, you know, a crew of 100 plus people that rely on you for their living to, to be able to pull the plug on, you know, everyone else that's, that's part of your organization. But I think in a perfect world, you know, there's often times where the facial expressions I saw on stage from, from Jerry, you know, playing with, uh, with you know, his bandmates in the JGB, he just seemed to be significantly happier. You'd see him rocking on stage more. You'd see him smiling on stage more. You'd see him paying attention to the other bandmates where, you know, he'd have that look of inspiration of watching what they were doing and thinking like, my God, you're good at what your craft is. And, uh, you know, and that's especially true with Melvin, you know, watching him like go back and forth, like during like, a lucky old son or a, uh, or, uh, you know, a couple other ones where Melvin was really hard on the Hammond. Um, you know, that was amazing to watch. But during this period, the, the period of creativity that we're talking about now, it was just such a clean, you know, sort of interplay back and forth between Jerry and, uh, and Keith, which I don't think you even saw that much. You know, again, I, I didn't see those shows, but watching videos of, you know, 70s uh, Grateful Dead, I didn't get the sense that, you know, he was as enamored with Keith playing uh, the, the piano on the Grateful Dead stage as he was when he actually got a chance to just kind of go one-on-one with him uh, with JGB. I think that's right. And, and you know, I, I think that that's probably true about Jerry with a lot of musicians that, you know, the, the, the thing about the Dead was that, you know, that was just his group. They were his guys and, you know, they had their thing. And, you know, I I, I think it's, it's it's fair to say, and, and you and I have touched on this, that on, you know, on any given night, given a choice, I just as soon see the Jerry Garcia band. But if you told me, that I was going to get to pick a night where either the JGB or the Grateful Dead were just, you know, having one of those peak, beautiful, special moments. That's the Grateful Dead. That it would pretty much hand down be the dead. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Because that is, it. When, when the dead hits that moment, it's more than just Garcia hitting it. Garcia can hit it in the middle of a morning do solo, even if the rest of the band is dragging their ass. But, you know, when he's hitting it and Bobby's hitting it and Phil is right there and the, and the keyboard players are filling in the holes and the drummers are, you know, raining fire down on everybody, but that's when you get those just unbelievable magical moments that, you know, everybody talks about the kids will see 100 shows to see five minutes of that. And it's true. It, 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 it is addictive. It, it's just, it's, it's, it's absolutely incredible. But given the fact that it didn't happen with any great frequency, um, you know, and, and probably rare as the years went on, Garcia Band, I think, was a great alternative for those of us that just said, well, the hell with it. You know, at worst, I'm going to get a whole night of Garcia solos, and that's not such a bad thing to see. And I'll get it in a room of 2,000 people instead of in a, uh, in a stadium of, of 80,000. You know, and for me, the appeal was if I knew I could fly to the Warfields, you know, every six weeks or so and go see a three-night run where I could sit there and have dinner beforehand and order a couple beers and have table service and be 25 feet from the stage at the furthest. If I wanted to walk up to the front row, I walk up to the front row and sit right in front of, uh, of Gloria and Jackie and Melvin. You know, th- that's a pretty fun way to spend an evening, right? And, uh, you know, you can never do that. You know, you go see the Grateful Dead and people are fighting you fighting you for space, you know, to get into the fill zone and where you're going to put your tarp down and all the rest of that stuff that, that you never had. There was a sense of community in a, very, in a small theater show that no longer existed at the Grateful Dead level that you had with Garcia Band all the way to the end. And it's not to say that he wasn't playing 
you know, the, um, the indoor arenas on the East Coast when he played his fall tours. But on the West, West Coast, the Garcia band was still terribly accessible all the way until 95, you know, really accessible. Uh, and, you know, it's great to know that on any given year, there's probably 20 plus shows you could catch on the West Coast that uh, you just pop in, pop out, and uh, life was easy. You know, so for that side, I mean, we're looking at these shows. In 78, you think about where the Grateful Dead were playing, and they were, you know, they were playing big spaces. You know, they were playing, you know, not necessarily stadiums, but they were playing 20, 30,000 person rooms. And you look at JGB, the Warner Theaters, again, it's a 2,000 person room. Yeah, well, if you factor in English Town, English Town was probably 100,000 people. So, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't a regular thing for them at that point, but they could still command crowds that large. You know, and I've yet to hear the person who was at English Town complain that, you know, geez, it was, it was too big, right? Everybody who was there just loved it. And, 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 and the dead could do that. You know, I mean, I saw them, the, the, the greatest show I ever saw, the, the show where I got on the bus, uh, you know, for good, Syracuse in uh, the fall of 1982. And, you know, we were in, inside the Carrier Dome sitting at the other end. So, you know, over 100 yards away, a whole football field away and halfway up. It didn't matter. I didn't need to see anything. The music was so great. The whole scene was so unbelievable that it just was, you know, they just filled it up like nobody's business. And um, while I always love seeing them, obviously, you know, in, in a small theater or in, in, in a small venue as possible, you know, eventually it didn't become, it wasn't possible. But, you know, at least that was always nice. But yes, Garcia offered that alternative that, you know, he, even like when he played here in one of my favorite Garcia shows of all time is his uh, uh, 80. Uh, 89 show at Poplar Creek, I think, which was released also in one of the Jerry series shows. And, you know, that place held on a, on a good night, probably about twenty or 25,000 people with the pavilion and the lawn. Um, but even that venue, you know, he made it feel very, very small and he was just able to really rock the place out and, um, and, and do it. And, uh, you know, if you could catch him in a small venue, it was a great night. But, heck, the night we saw him with Frank Zappa, you know, on their tour in 1984, they played at the UIC Pavilion, which was a, you know, a, a college hockey and basketball arena. So not enormous, but certainly larger than a two or 3,000-seat venue. That's a, that's a fun bill, Zappa and Garcia. I have to say it was one of the, you know, one of the better Garcia nights I ever had, even though they flipped a coin backstage each night. And that night, Garcia opened... And we were all a little bummed because we're like, that means he's not going to play as long. But also none of us had ever seen Frank Zappa and we were all very enamored with the idea of seeing him and it all worked out just fine. Garcia played a great set and Zappa came out and blew us away. So we, uh, we had a lot of fun. Nice, nice, nice. Well, I can say this, you know, I think you and I have had some offline conversations and hopefully the audience out there doesn't mind as much. Um, you know, I don't know if they're all as big Garcia band fans as we are. But I think we're going to spend a little bit more time over the next year concentrating on some JGB instead of just the Grateful Dead, and you know, we'll probably start covering some other bands we haven't haven't as well uh, too. So it's not just you know kind of Fish and the Grateful Dead and Garcia Band, but you know, we we might pick some other bands to to focus on for a night or two, and especially if we've got guests that would be you know conducive to do that. And as I said to you earlier, you know, I've been trying to, to get Steve Silverman on this uh, show, and if we do, then I'm I'm expecting that uh, you know David Crosby will be a, a topic of conversation. So. There's a lot of great music out there with a lot of great musicians and, you know, just tons of stuff that I think we could talk about outside of just, you know, the immediate um, uh, focus of the show, which is primarily The Grateful Dead. 
I think you're right. And, and look, I can talk about Garcia all day. You can talk about Garcia all day. You know, and I'd like to assume that I've never heard anybody who's a fan of the Grateful Dead say they're not a Garcia fan. Sometimes people aren't huge Bobby fans. Sometimes maybe not so big on Phil or the drummers. I've never heard anybody who likes the Grateful Dead say, yeah, but Garcia's not my thing. You know, I mean, I, I think that ultimately he's the glue that holds everybody together in that band. So can I tell you something hilarious? This actually goes back to the Steve Silverman thing. Uh, two days ago, Silverman had posted on Twitter that you know, every couple of years he uh, goes back and decides to listen to Samba in the Rain to see whether or not, you know, it was actually better than he remembered it, only to be terribly disappointed when he finds out it's just as bad, if not worse, than he thought it was. And it, and it just, like, created this cavalcade of, like, responses, because, you know, I, I totally agree. I think Samba's maybe the worst lyrics that Robert Hunter ever wrote. I think it's as a cheesy attempt at a pop song as you could have, and, like, everything about it just drips with its awfulness. Uh, and I hate to say it because I'm a huge you know, Robert Hunter fan, but there was that period in 94 and 95 where I don't think, you know, If the Shoe Fits or Childhood's End or, you know, Samba in the Rain or a handful of those songs were just throwaways, just all of them were. Uh, and I don't think they would have gotten better over time. They just, they, they didn't have it. They weren't great Grateful Dead songs. But it was really funny that a lot of people were saying, oh, well, you know, the song for me was this. But somebody posted... Senor, the, uh, the you know, uh, Tales of Yankee Power, the, the Bob Dylan song, which I think Garcia just does a magnificent job on. Like, it's one of my all-time favorites, you know, and it's like, I think it's as poetic, and like, the same way I feel about Visions of Johanna, I feel about um, Senor. And he's like, Senor is my samba in the rain. I just sat there and, like, whacked by four. I'm like, what? Like, how how can you think? I'm like, like one is, like, Hunter's, like, worst lyrics. I mean, again, everyone's got different tastes, right? But one is, like, to me, a, a Dylan masterpiece played flawlessly by Garcia, especially on that double live album that he released in 91, versus, versus Samba. And so to your point of, you know, no one's saying that about, about Garcia band, I guess there's people out there that, you know, will listen to a, a Garcia band song that I think is just tremendous and, uh, and, and see a completely different way. But I stand by my statement, like, really? Senor? Like, of all the ones you're going to choose, you're choosing Senor? <laughs> I just, it, it, I didn't get it. No, I, I, I get that. And I will say this about Samba. I thought it was a great vehicle for Vince Welnick. You know, the guy needed a tune and he took that one and ran with it. And that was fine, you know, for me. And, you know, it's just an excuse to listen to something else and go take a piss and come back and get ready for, you know, some more great music. But, uh, you know, yeah. It, it, but he had, he, had, he had Long Way to Go Home, which is, you know, arguably musically a better song. He had, um, he had uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, the Beatle cover. You know, there, there's a and Bob O'Reilly. Yep, there's a handful of songs that he was playing that you know people were like, okay, we can, you know, we can hang with this. I mean, he had his verse during the wait. He had other things. I, I just don't think that, uh, you know, Samba just it didn't contribute all that much. Right. No, it 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 it, it, it was not. It's not a tune you walk out of there thinking, boy. You know, do I really miss that? But, you know, of course, this just leads back. You know, you if we want to go through and talk about tunes like that, and you know, you hear stuff and one man's, you know slap your head on the forehead and get the hell out of there is another man's, oh my God, I've been waiting all night for this, right? And, you know, for me, that invariably always comes up with Liberty. And I just, I, I you know, show them at shows and they play Liberty and everybody, oh my God, they played Liberty last night. I was hoping they would and they did. And I'm, it was, and I'm like, look, even if I'm going to say that, you know, I enjoy when they play Liberty for whatever reason, they played 20 other songs. Don't tell me, please, that that was the highlight of your night. I, wow, but... Scarlet Fire, Liberty. 
I, I got to take the Scarlet Fire every time. To each his own, and I totally get it. And, you know, if Jerry felt it was good enough to play, and I know Phil loves Liberty, and a lot of them like to play it, and it's, it's really a lot of fun for all of them, and, and that's just great. But, uh, yeah, you know, for me it was like, okay, let's head to the exit because it's, it's, I walk like an eagle and talk like a duck or whatever the hell it is, and, and I'm out of here. Yeah, like I felt the same way. Like, you know, everyone I knew that was sort of like a, a Southern Grateful Dead fan would always love walking blues and uh, Little Red Rooster. You know, and I get the bluesy stuff, and I appreciate it, but those were never never my favorites. Whenever people be like, oh, they got a little red rooster loud. I'm like, really? So I never really got those either. But, uh, you know, again, to each their own. But that one I saw was a funny anecdote of, um, of you know, you saying that if you love the Grateful Dead, then very likely you, you love, you know, all things Garcia as well. But I guess perhaps not. Everyone has their tastes, you know. It's, it's, it's hard to say, but... Uh... You know, look, it is what it is, so, and uh, that's what makes it fun. I, I will go on the record, though, and, and, and say that I'm right and he was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's not subjective. It's in yours a masterpiece. No, I, I that I can't disagree with. I mean, you know, if you don't like Senor, then, you know, that's okay. You're just part of that small group that isn't a Bob Dylan fan, and, you know, that's everybody's entitled to their own opinion. I get that. Um, but it is kind of hard to, you know, really accept and appreciate, you know, pretty much of all of American contemporary music without stopping to consider at least for a minute the impact that Dylan might have had on it. But people got to do what they got to do. Um, so we will get to one more tune off of this in a minute uh, uh, on our way out the door. But uh, a couple of other things. Um, first and foremost, uh, uh, I did take some time out uh, this past Friday. Uh, and I was able uh, and lucky enough to grab a ticket and get to go with our good friend Bob Hoban, uh, my buddy and uh, friend of the show, uh, to see uh, the Bobby Weir and Wolf Brothers show at the Chicago Theater. Uh, and boy, it was quite a show and uh, a lot of fun to be there. So it's no secret to our regular listeners that Rob and I are, are very much Jerry Garcia guys. We're very much Grateful Dead guys. And, and we've never been huge fans of, of Dead & Co. We see it as Bobby's project with the other guys in the band and uh, it hasn't been particularly satisfying for us on a musical level, although uh, we both agree that it's it's still a lot of fun to be out there with the dead crowd and uh, you know and forty thousand people in Wrigley Field all doing their dead thing and those guys up on stage playing their music and that's nice. Uh, but we've also talked a lot about seeing Phil Lesh and his band and and how uh, uh, sometimes it feels so much more energizing and, and and really you know hardcore jam band rock and roll they can be. So I go to Bob Weir and Wolf Brothers, and uh, first of all, let me give a quick shout out and thank you to my good friend uh, and colleague in this industry, Bob Hoban, uh, now working in conjunction with Clark Hill. Uh, as you know, many of you may know, I spent a number of years working with Bob with the uh, Hoban Law Group uh, out uh, as part of one of their of counsel when they were based in Denver, and uh, Bob just keeps succeeding in the industry. We're all very happy for him, uh, and he's doing really well at Clark Hill. Uh, but he was in town and was kind enough. He had an extra ticket for uh, Bob Weir and Wolf Brothers to reach out to me so I could go with him. And uh, after a nice dinner, we made our way over to the Chicago Theater, and we were rewarded with a great show. And I say that seriously, and not, more importantly, it was a very eye-opening show for me. And uh, there was a real revelation that came out of it that I'll, that I'll get to in one second. But first, let's get down to the down and dirty. Uh, Bobby on stage with uh, the Wolf Brothers. So we've got a, a guy playing the... Um, uh, pedal steel guitar, uh, one of them playing the stand-up bass, uh, Jeff Comenti, who we all love on keyboard, uh, uh, Jay Lane back uh, on the drums doing a tremendous job as always, 
and um, a whole horn section and uh, one or two other string instruments, a string cello and uh, what looked like a violin, although honestly from the where I was sitting, the angle was a little bit tough to discern exactly what the instrument was. Uh, but they had a, a, a trumpet and they had a trombone up there and it was all wonderfully orchestrated. And I am very, very happy to say that Bobby was center and lead on guitar by himself all night and he just killed it. Um, he just jammed and jammed and jammed and jammed. And for a guy, you know, who over the years always kind of got a lot of grief as being the second fiddle on guitar to Jerry, although, as you know, Rob and I have often talked about Bobby's skills as a quote-unquote rhythm guitar player and, and how important that was to the dead success and filling all the holes and really uh, displaying his chops over the years as they got stronger and stronger, uh, he was an excellent front man in his own band. Um, and they, from coming out with Brother Esau, which I first heard in 1983 and, and have always loved that tune and gotten into great debates over exactly what it meant and on to greatest story ever told. Uh, so keeping with a little bit of a Bible theme for the night. Uh, then we got the Jerry tunes, Deal and Ramble and Rose. Uh, back to the traditional Bobby Little Red Rooster, a quick rat dog with two gin. And then really for me, uh, one of the highlights of the evening and, and one of the reasons why we go see Bob Weir is because he gave us a full weather report suite uh, into Let It Grow. And, you know, as you know, the dead for years and years and years, starting from about the mid-70s on, abandoned the whole first part of the weather report suite and would only play Let It Grow. And while Let It Grow is a great tune, uh, to hear it played together is marvelous. And it's Bobby's song, and so he, he does it as well as anybody uh, that was marvelous. After a, uh, a quick set break, uh, Bobby came back out with a friend of the devil, uh, gave us an estimated eyes. Uh, in the middle of the eyes, he went into Marvin Gaze, what's going on, showing a little flexibility, came back and finished eyes, and then even more flexibility, jumped into a tremendous version of uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, the Beatles off of the Revolver album, which uh, Vince uh, Welnick uh, had brought into the Dead repertoire when he started playing with a, a, a double Baba O'Reilly Tomorrow Never Knows encore that was always really popular. A uh, strong other one uh, with a j beautiful Jeff uh, Comenti piano solo, and I could listen to that guy all night. Uh, and then Bobby in Chicago, I don't know what it is, but he had to play Days Between, and I'll, I'll give this to Bobby. Since he started playing it, it's made me gone back and listen to Jerry sing it a lot more, and it's given me a new appreciation for Jerry's versions of it. Um, but let's let Jerry sing it, I think, Bobby, okay? That's his tune, and that's where it belongs. He closed with a great uh, Franklin's Tower. We were all happy. Really great night, anticipating the encore. And I'm really sorry to be a negative Nelly and end it this way, but he did close with Liberty. And for God's sakes, folks, come on. Bob Weir has so many great tunes that he can play in that situation, so many great Jerry tunes he could play in that situation, and this endless fascination with Liberty that he has and Phil has, and they all have just rolls on and on. And just to show you the difference in the uh, generational situation here, uh, Bob and I are there, and they, they start to play the turn and I, tune, and I turn to Bob and I say, oh my God, I cannot believe they're playing Liberty. The 20-something in front of us turns to his buddy high-fiving, oh my God, I cannot believe they're playing Liberty. And they were totally psyched. And it, it, I don't want to say that we were bummed, only bummed in the sense like you always are at a dead show when there's something else you would have rather heard. And quite frankly, if it's Liberty 99% of the time, I'd rather hear something else. And I'll, I'll take the heat from that, from the deadheads. I don't care. It's just, it's just the way it is. And the guys who are my generation all pretty much feel the same way. So I think I'm on solid ground when I say that. But nevertheless, he played it well. And we all left and we were all very, very happy. But here's my big revelation of the night, fans. Um, I loved this 100 times more than I loved Dead & Company. And it was right up there in the same kind of level as Phil Lesh. And what I realized is that with both Phil and friends and Bobby playing on his own like this, 
um, in a situation where um, uh, you know he calls the shots and he does it the way that he wants to do. And, and the Wolf Brothers are there certainly to, to play backup to him, but to play backup to him, um, he was freed from kind of the formulaic constraints, I think, that Dead & Company had. And what it really made me realize is Dead & Company is a bunch of wonderfully individually talented musicians, and they've come together because um, they all love the Grateful Dead, and, and, and they all play together very well. And there's no doubt that over time they've gelled together as any good mus musical group you hope ultimately would. But I think that the problem is that they all have such strict ideas about what their role is in contributing to this overall sound that it, it, even when they're being quote-unquote improvisational, it's all done at a certain pace and it's done in a certain rhythm and it's done in a certain way where each one of them gets included up to a certain point. And when it's just Bobby, it's just Bobby. And the tunes were more upbeat. Uh, he played them you know, with much more of a rock and roll edge to them. And uh, I'm just going to say it, you know, I'll go to see Dead & Company if they're around because I like hanging out with my buddies. Uh, but musically, they're just not there. And, and it, was, it was a wonderful revelation to know uh, that I would feel that way uh, equally as strong seeing Bob Weir uh, individually as I saw seeing Phil Lesh individually. So uh, whether this is a compliment or a, a, a backhanded insult, I don't know. But hats off to Bobby, and he was up on stage with his cowboy hat. We'll post some pictures so you can all see it. Uh, but he had the whole cowboy look going, and, and he was up there rocking and, and clearly having a good time. And yeah, he sang some of the Jerry tunes kind of out of cadence like he always does, but this was his show, and he was having a good time. And I was really glad that I went. I had a great time with uh, Bob Hoban, and uh, glad that I could make this little musical breakthrough uh, in realizing you know exactly where Dead & Company falls and uh, you know how I feel about that whole situation. So um, that's it. Glad to see Bob Weir. We'll be seeing more live music soon. And um, it's always great when you get out and see live music. And so I guess what I take away from that, Rob, is, uh, you know, while my, my, my natural inclination is always going to be to swing to the Jerry side, it is uh, important every now and then to touch base with the Bobby side of things and, uh, you know, just reestablish those roots. Yeah, I actually just saw a video of, uh, of Bobby playing uh, a Jack Straw from the other night with, you know, a full kind of uh, orchestral, you know, it was like a, a violin player, et cetera. I don't know if that was the full Wolf, Wolf Brothers uh, lineup or whether it was a separate lineup, but it was uh, it was definitely super cool. And while we're talking about other members of the band, I, I think we were remiss not to say happy 82nd birthday belated to Philip Chapman Lesh. Uh, from, we, talk, we talked about his birthday show last week, but I don't think either of us wished him a happy birthday for this week. So uh, happy birthday to Phil. Well, that's an excellent point. Thank you for, for, for being sure to mention that. And Phil, 82 years old. I never had a grandparent who lived to 82 years old. And just today, or yesterday, the first thing I heard, and maybe I heard this from you, I can't even tell anymore where I'm hearing all of this from. Well, but before that, this summer, he's going to do at least one, if not more, shows with String Cheese, the Phil Lesh incident, I think they're calling it, at Red Rocks, the annual string cheese shows, and apparently Phil is going to join them for a few of those shows in mid-July, but then yes, I just saw today that the Cap Theater tickets are going on sale at the end of this month, uh, where he's going to do another nine nights out there like he did uh, this past year, uh, three nights, uh, one week, three nights the next week, and then finally leading into whenever Halloween is for his, his final three, um, but they have not announced the Friends yet. So I'm hopeful that they will make that announcement prior to the uh, prior to the ticket purchase date. Not that I wouldn't be happy to see Phil in any lineup, but I think there are certain lineups I'd prefer to see him in more than others. 
Yeah, for sure. And I can tell you that on the string cheese side, you know, look, having lived in Colorado for quite a few years and having a lot of, you know, guys that worked in production that are, are part of the uh, string cheese family, you know, that's a, Michael Kang is a virtuoso musician, you know, as far as his ability to play multiple instruments, you know, Billy Nursey style and uh, Travis's and Hans and that entire band as musicians just fits so well for uh, for Phil to play with. And there's such a great camaraderie between sort of the Grateful Dead family and, you know, John Perry Barlow obviously writing songs for uh, for String Cheese. But, you know, if, if you're in Colorado, I'd say definitely, definitely go check out that show because there is a, a real sort of overlap and kinsmanship between those musicians. And I always think about it from the perspective of, you know, thinking that, you know, Michael Kang, when he was probably 19 or 20 and really becoming a, the musician that he is today, looking up to a musician like Phil Lesh and how amazingly cool it's got to be that, you know, at this point in their careers, that Phil's like, yeah, I'm going to drop everything and come out and play your Red Rock shows with you. And it's got to be something that as you hit a point in your career as an up-and-comer, you know, and obviously String Cheese reached that point 20 years ago, but, uh, you know, hitting it where all of a sudden musicians of that caliber go, yeah, I want to play with these guys. There's got to be something so satisfying to be able to call your mom and go, you won't believe who we're sharing the stage with tomorrow night. You know, it's just so cool to, to have that ability to say, like, I've now reached a, the, the pinnacle where, you know, Phil Lesh is going to sit in with me for a couple nights at Red Rocks. Right, either that or you have to be in the bar mitzvah band from St. Louis in 1971. <laughs> either way, you get that experience. Either way works. Right, yeah. maybe not at Red Rocks, but by God, uh, but by God, either way works. Unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it out for Phil because my plan is to head out to Colorado at the end of the month to see a, a Tedeschi truck show out there. And um, I, anybody you see at Red Rocks is fun, but I just I love Tedeschi trucks so much it's hard to pass up on that opportunity but uh yeah there's just lots of great music going on around here uh hopefully that uh um, you know if we can avoid over here what appears to be this little bit of surge in omicron right now that we're seeing in uh europe and other parts of the world that we can get a full summer of outdoor music in and uh i know we're looking i'm looking forward to uh catching the fish shows up at alpine valley this summer is going to be a lot of fun and there's just uh, uh so much great stuff going on out there um, and to really kind of piggyback onto that, I think that we can now safely say that uh, we are very, very excited to announce uh, that our show that's going to drop on Monday, April 11th, we are going to be very, very pleased and honored to have as our guest on that show, Rob Bleetstein. And for anyone who listens to the uh, Grateful Dead channel on Sirius XM, uh, Channel 23, uh, you know Rob because he's the guy that introduces uh, every single, just about every single show uh, that they play on the station during their two or three times a day when they play live shows out of their vault. And he'll come back during the intermission and give a little update about what's to come and then give a little wrap-up at the end. Uh, but for those of us that listen to it all the time, you know, we, we've just kind of come to identify his voice as uh, the voice of a guy who, who knows what the hell he's talking about when he's talking about Grateful Dead concerts. And he has graciously agreed to be on our show. And uh, we look forward to be able to presenting him to all of you uh, in our show on April 11th. Um, and and uh, Rob, I, I just have to note something because we were going to announce and we still will, um, and I'll let you give the specifics of it, but uh, we're going to be missing you for the next couple of weeks here. Uh, but I had note that you're just going to happen to be back just in time for the uh, Rob Bleetstein episode, and I applaud you on your uh, very savvy travel planning. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll, yes, I'll be over skiing in Europe for a few weeks trying to dodge Omicron, so hopefully uh, it stays away from chairlifts and gondolas and trams. Uh, so we'll see what we can do to, to stay safe over there. But, uh, but yeah, no, the, the timing is fortuitous, and I'm delighted that I was able to, uh, to schedule this, or more importantly that Rob's schedule permitted that he was going to be able to book this 
when I would be back, you know, there's times where all of us have, have missed guests that we really wanted to be on the show, and we've had to take that week off for whatever reason. But this is gonna be fantastic uh, for you, especially Larry, being a big Pearl Jam fan, because you know Rob Bleasing just isn't the voice of the Grateful Dead. He's probably the foremost authority in the world on, on Pearl Jam as well. So you know, there's a lot of other questions I'm pretty sure you can ask. You know, uh, him on that side. But I think he's seen upwards of 400 Pearl Jam shows at this point. And I don't think there's too many people in the world that can make that claim. So it's, uh, you know, this will be a really, really fun show, and I'm super fired up to have him as a guest. Yes, you're right, and I'm glad you mentioned that because at a minimum I want to talk with him about this Eddie Vedder show that I just saw uh, down in the San Diego area a few weeks ago when I was down there visiting, which, you know, just once again was just an outstanding musical performance by uh, by Eddie Vedder and his whole his whole crew of musicians that he was playing with. But yeah, you know, a guy like Rob, like Rob uh, you know, an hour is not going to be nearly enough time um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, we will encourage you to to listen in. Um, uh, he's in the he's in the process of, of him picking out a, a show that he'd like us to talk about, and and who better to pick a show than Rob Bleedstein himself? So uh, uh, that will also uh, uh, be a very very exciting moment, and uh, we'll look forward to having everybody then. And it'll be nice to have uh, Rob Hunt back, and um, I think things will go well. So uh, that's all I have for today, Rob. What about you? I think we should give a little bit more color to that, which is that we went back and forth and suggested some ideas and themes for that show. And, you know, I, I picked out a show that I thought would be a terrific one. And Bleedstein came back and just said, you know, I like this one better. I wrote the liner notes for the, for the CD. And, you know, I know this one a bit better. So what do you think about that? And the only answer you have to that is, yep, sounds great. <laughs> like, I'm 100% in on that. Right. So. No, you know what? I'm so I'm so glad you pointed that out because I I I spaced on and yes, that's that's in this industry, folks. That's when you know you've got it made when the guy you're going to have on your show can tell you what show to pick because he wrote the liner notes for the Dave's Pick release of the show. It's a 1978 show from William and Mary College, and uh, you know, yeah, if the if the if the guy's good enough to and I went back and read the liner notes after he said after he told us that and. He knows his stuff, man. This is going to be a great show. Absolutely. And, and hey, not taking away from uh, some of the other guests we've got coming up as well. So, you know, stay tuned. We've got some really, really interesting people that we've got scheduled. And Larry and I are making our, uh, our best efforts to try to pull in some really cool, unique people to uh, to feature on the show. Because, you know, as much as you guys might like hearing our, hearing our voices out there, uh, we like hearing the voices of others as well that can speak intelligently on this subject matter. So, you know, for me, that's, that's pretty much all I have. What I'll say is we're going to end the show today with... Well, here, let me yep. do this. I'm going to say my goodbyes, and I'm going to let you give us the lead into this and lay it all out because this is your baby, and, and I can't do it justice the way you could at all, uh, although I, I, I love it, and I'm going to be very excited to listen to it. So uh, before I hand things over to Rob to lead us into our final cut from Garcia at the Warner Theater in 1978, this is Larry Mishkin saying thank you for listening. I uh, look forward to talking to you the next couple of weeks without my uh, co-host uh, by my side, but he'll be back in time for Rob Bleetstein, and that'll be a fun time. So uh, be safe, have fun, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Rob, it's all yours. So to end the show today, uh, appropriately, we're going to use the ending of the Warner Theater show, which, you know, if you think about the, the ways to sort of take a hot show and phase it out, you know, for the Grateful Dead, they'd often use a Broke Down Palace or they'd use a, uh, a Knocking on Heaven's Door or something else, the Black Muddy River. Um, in the case of Garcia Band, it was very, very rare, but in this period of 78, uh, for just a couple shows, they used a song called Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is just a, a beautiful, beautiful song. Very short, very sweet. I mean, clocks in, I think, just over a minute long. But it's uh, it's terrific. And so we picked the end of this 
you know, primarily because of the way that Garcia signs off at the end, which I think is a, a terrific way of, of saying goodnight. So with that, I leave you at the end of Palm Sunday. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has kind of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.